your organization is too large, too popular, and too well-funded to be in the denial stage of the five stages of vulnerability response grief. But you shouldn't have to be the author of international standards on how to do a thing in order for you to get attention for a vulnerability report. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're moving right into our main story, which is about bug bounty programs. And it's a story that starts with another story. Let's go back to the start of 2021, a whole eight months ago. My goodness, it's been eight months. As I was saying, an app that had already been around since mid-2020 gained the interest of Silicon Valley. The app is called Clubhouse, and first guarded behind an exclusive waitlist, it lets users today drop into spontaneous audio conversations that, once they are over, are over. With COVID lockdown procedures still separating tons of people around the world at the time, Clubhouse initially offered people some of that immediate, unplanned, conversational magic that maybe they lost in shifting to a work-from-home environment. It was, in one way, an app to find a feeling. And it grew in popularity quite a bit, actually. Celebrities joined the app and began speaking on scheduled panels. The waitlist for non-celebrities grew longer, and it seemed like every venture capitalist had their own take on it. But in April of this year, a vulnerability in Clubhouse was found. And because Clubhouse had what is called a bug bounty program, in which companies pay independent researchers to come forward with evidence and reporting of vulnerabilities in their products, Clubhouse learned about that vulnerability. And look, as a bit of a spoiler, Clubhouse did the right thing. They listened, they learned, they patched. Eventually. Because as we'll learn today, Clubhouse took its time. Like a lot of time. Which is frustrating because, well, you'd think a company with a bug bounty program would quickly address the bugs it's being told about. But today's episode isn't just about Clubhouse. It's about that popular practice that Clubhouse engaged in, the bug bounty program. For years, Silicon Valley startups have had a shaky relationship with these programs. Google famously swore off bug bounty programs early in its history, while other companies have raced to set up such a program within months of launching. And yes, while a bug bounty program can help a company catch vulnerabilities after the fact, there's actually a ton of work that goes into setting up a responsible program. Today, To help us understand the story of Clubhouse, the importance of responsible bug bounty programs, and whether bug bounty programs are enough to solve our cybersecurity woes, we're speaking to the hacker who discovered Clubhouse's vulnerability, who is more than just the hacker who found this vulnerability. She is the CEO and founder of Luta Security, Katie Masuris. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Katie, let's just kind of get right into it, right? Back in April, you wrote about this vulnerability in what was, like I said at the time, probably the hottest app in Silicon Valley, Clubhouse. I think it gained popularity because during the pandemic, we were all separated from one another. But let's just get right into that vulnerability and understand the story of it, of finding it, finding what it was. 
the best way I think to start is to find out why were you poking around in Clubhouse to begin with? Why indeed? You know, honestly, with how much trouble it was to try and get to the right person to disclose this vulnerability to them, I often avoid kicking the tires in applications because I know that it can be quite the trek to disclose something to them. So the reason I did this with Clubhouse was One, the app was fairly new, but it was already boasting a valuation of, I think, $1 billion at the time. And I think there were rumors that Twitter was planning to acquire the company for $4 billion. So naturally, I was curious as to the state of cybersecurity for one of the fastest growing startups. And I had heard about some API abuse vulnerabilities. And basically, as they were developing their software very, very quickly, and it was iPhone only at the time, I think they were experimenting with opening up their application to Android users. They were experimenting with their APIs. And I was hearing tales of security holes and honestly, some basic security mistakes that surprised me for a company that had such a high valuation. So I decided to take a deeper look. And in this deeper look, can you just help me understand how you go about that? Because from my perspective, I'm like, well, I know that there's an app and I truly do not know how you begin to investigate those things that you had heard about. So help me understand, how did you engage in that deeper look? And also, what did you find? Well, those are great questions. Coming from a professional hacking background where I was what you call a penetration tester, where companies and large organizations would hire me to hack into their systems and teach them what I had done and how to prevent it, And also coming from a developer, software developer background, understanding the underlying issues that plague a lot of software, I basically approached it with that hacker and developer mindset. And what I set out to do was to see whether or not, for example, the application logged you out as it was supposed to when you switched devices. So I had a second iPhone, and it was iPhone only at the time. And I heard that one of the fixes for some of their problems was, you know, to log out of the application completely, log back in, and that would supposedly install the latest version in the background for you. So you'd receive a security update. And before I wanted to secure, you know, to update my main phone, I decided to see what would happen if I logged in on a second iPhone. So that was the beginning of the exploration. And what I found was that, the behavior of the application on the first iPhone was really interesting. I happened to be joined into a room where there was audio, you know, that I could hear on the first iPhone. And when I joined and logged in on the second iPhone, you'd expect me to get logged out on the first iPhone. Well, it only appeared to log me out. It put me back in the welcome screen in phone number one, but I could still hear the audio going on in the room that I was in. So I thought this is interesting. Well, Let me look at phone number two. And phone number two didn't have the audio there, but I was as if I was in the clubhouse hallway, not in any room at all. So there I was. I had basically cloned an instance of myself. And what it seemed like was they were improperly handling my session talking to the application as myself as a user. And I was able to be logged in simultaneously on two devices. 
and I tested this out a little bit more on the second phone, I was able to join a completely different room and hear audio for the second room on the second phone. So at that point, I knew with my software developer background and my professional penetration testing background that what was going on here was improper session termination and improper session handling. And these are some low-hanging fruit types of well-known vulnerabilities. And that began, you know, essentially my process where I felt like I should write this up and let them know about it. I know that you said this, right? This is some low-hanging fruit. It sounds, it sounds really basic. Just from my perspective, I'm like, oh, wow, like something like being able to essentially duplicate your own session twice over. There was no exploding the code here. There was no like going in, breaching Clubhouse whatsoever. It was like you had two iPhones. How basic is this? How simple is this? Is this something that that is typically tested for in like in all software that just goes to market? Well, frankly, they absolutely should have tested for this kind of thing. I mean, session handling at its most basic, you have to be able to invalidate a session at the server side, not rely on the client, meaning in this case, the iPhone, to terminate the sessions for you. And apparently, they didn't test for this at all. And they mistakenly didn't call one of their own APIs when you logged in on a second phone. The first phone basically stayed logged in if you were already in a room. They completely missed that area of testing. And as you said, you know, it was fairly basic to be able to find this issue, considering I didn't need any special equipment. I didn't need to write a custom exploit or anything like that. And I didn't need to bypass the iPhone applications, the client side itself. I used the client itself in order to abuse their improper session handling. Yeah. So... You've found this out. Is that when you begin compiling a report and trying to reach Clubhouse or what what are your next steps? Well, I found that I could do this behavior. And, you know, at first I was looking at it going, okay, well, what could an attacker do with this kind of behavior where it is improperly invalidating the session at the server side and, and was missing that step? So I began experimenting with, you know, phone number two. So back in the attacker mindset, I was seeing, well, what happens if I leave the room that I was in on phone number one? What happens if I use phone number two, which is now my actively logged in session, you know, where I still have full controls per the regular use of the app? Whereas remember, phone number one had that welcome screen on it. So I couldn't interact directly with the app on phone number one, but I could hear. And presumably if I had been on the stage as a speaker, I could still speak in the room that I was in in phone number one. So I I looked at phone number two and I said, what happens if I log out using phone number two from the room that I'm still logged into in phone number one? And that's when things got really interesting. So I logged out or appeared to log out on phone number two, but guess what? I was still logged in and active in the room on phone number one, except I disappeared, meaning my icon was gone from the room. And again, if I had been a speaker in that room, I could still speak, not just listen. So that really solidified the true attack, you know, and the true problem with this vulnerability that I had discovered. 
And that was two issues. I named the first issue Stiller Geist, as in a silent ghost, eavesdropping ghost. You know, if you never had microphone access in that room, you wouldn't really be able to vocally disrupt the room. But you could, especially with this little disappearing trick that I had been able to pull off, you could silently eavesdrop in that room. And in terms of victims of, you know, a silent eavesdropper in the room, you know, there's an expectation that the app shows you everybody who's in the room, that people might be speaking more freely if they think they know everybody in the room. But in fact, there are these silent eavesdroppers. And then the second attack I named Banshee Bombing because we've all heard of Zoom bombing, you know, where unwelcome guests disrupt your, your Zoom calls. But Banshee Bombing was a little more alliterative. You know, it was basically the option where you use the same exact attack methodology, but you, if you ever had speaking ability in that room, you could pull that disappearing act and you could vocally disrupt the room where the moderators of the room and even the owner of the room would have no ability to remove you or anything. Their only option would be to shut down the room. And so at that point, I wrote up those two attack scenarios. I tried to find a contact, a point of contact at Clubhouse to be able to report them. And it took me weeks to find the right point of contact, even though they were running a bug bounty program. Wow. That sounds like it's not the best implementation of a bug bounty program. Tell me about those efforts, right? About trying to find that person. And then how did you actually get to the person you needed to reach? That's a great question. So the first thing I did was I just Googled how to report a security vulnerability to Clubhouse. And I emailed the very first email address that I came across, which unfortunately turned out to be the wrong company. So there's a different <laughs> app <laughs> called uh, called Clubhouse, and it's some kind of task management application. Mm. And they received my initial vulnerability report. So no from the outset, the usual tricks of just using Google and trying to find the best place to report a vulnerability, unfortunately, got that vulnerability with a full write-up sent to the wrong security team. That security team was very helpful. And within 24 hours, I received a message saying they had received the report and that it actually was going to the wrong company. So at that point, I did a little bit further digging and found that Clubhouse didn't have any point of contact except support at Clubhouse on their website. There's only one page and it basically just said for support issues, just email support at Clubhouse. So I emailed and I got nothing. I got no bounce, no auto reply, nothing. I also emailed the correct security at, I believe it was clubhouseapp.com, not clubhouse.com. But I emailed security at, which is the typical email address that you would use to report a security vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Again, I didn't get a bounce, but I didn't get any kind of auto reply, no signs of life, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I waited and I kept trying support at saying, look, I'm, I'm hesitant to send a, the full vulnerability report until you can confirm this is the right email address. I've <laughs> because I'd already sent it to the wrong place once. And yeah. I just didn't want that trend to continue. So I waited a few more days. And then finally, I got an autoresponder from both support at clubhouseapp.com and security at. And at that point, I said, okay, there's at least some sort of automated response here. I've gotten to the right place, presumably, but I still don't want to send this full report just in case maybe they've outsourced this to some kind of customer service organization in a foreign land and I'd be sending 
this vulnerability report to a third party. And I just didn't know and I didn't want to complicate the issue any further. Yeah. When you are saying that it's taking weeks, right? Can you help me understand? Are we talking two weeks? Are we talking six weeks? I think all told, it probably took me at least a couple of weeks to locate the right point of contact. And honestly, you know, I was just getting auto replies until I sent the vulnerability report because I kind of gave up on hearing from a human before I sent it, sent the vulnerability report. And then I further had to qualify that, look, you know, I'm attempting to do a vulnerability disclosure to you. And if I don't hear from a human, you know, an auto reply is not sufficient. If I don't hear from a human, there's a disclosure deadline associated with my report. And I gave them a standard 45-day disclosure deadline. This is standard as of CERT-CC. That is the Computer Emergency Response Team Coordination Center of the United States. And that is a 45-day deadline. Has been their standard for over a decade of giving vendors, you know, 45 days before they publicly disclose an issue. They will make adjustments, as will I in my own private, you know, vulnerability disclosure policy. I will make adjustments if an organization is sincerely working on a technical fix to the issue. But the purpose of having disclosure deadlines is it's really to balance the risk to users. It's not a threat. It is simply to say, look, we believe users are vulnerable. We who are reporting this to you, or in this case, myself and my cat Scappy, who assisted in the proof of concept videos that we shot to demonstrate the vulnerability. But, you know, essentially it's a disclosure deadline is there coming from the researcher to say, we don't want users to be exposed to this issue that we found for any longer than they have to. And we're balancing the risk to users by keeping it quiet. As long as you're fixing this issue in good faith and as quickly as you can create a comprehensive and well-tested fix. So it sounds like it took some time for you to finally get a person. You did get a person though, I'm hoping. (laughs) Yes, I did get a person and actually it was real human and very quickly I was speaking to actually one of the founders. So that was really a lot of attention, but I think it was also that I not only had given a deadline, but I had included some links to different videos that I had shot over the years. One link was an overview of the ISO standards for which I am the co-author and co-editor on vulnerability disclosure and vulnerability handling processes. And I gave them a link to a 20 minute video that gave an overview of those two international standards. And then I also gave them a link to sort of a humorous video that talked about the five stages of vulnerability response grief. And I said, your organization is too large, too popular, and too well-funded to be in the denial stage of the, the five stages of vulnerability response grief. But you shouldn't have to be the author of international standards on how to do a thing in order for you to get attention for a vulnerability report. And I really do feel like that was part of why they paid attention. Another important thing that happened in that communication chain was they tried to get me to join their private bug bounty program. So once I did get a human, they said, oh, thanks for your report. Please report it over here. And they referred to their bug bounty platform page, which was an invitation only page. You can't access it from the outside unless you've been invited to join that program by the people running it. 
And I, I declined that offer, not because, you know, I didn't think the vulnerability was worth a bounty. I, in fact, said, look, if it's worth a bounty, according to your bounty rules, I would love for you to donate that to the Pay Equity Now Foundation, which is the foundation I started in order to achieve pay equity across all genders and races in our lifetime. And I said, so if it qualifies for a bounty, please donate the bounty to the Pay Equity Now Foundation. But I refused to sign the platform terms and their implied non-disclosure agreement. And the reason for that is, again, to balance risk to users, of which I was one of them. You know, I really enjoy the application and I wanted it to be more secure. So I absolutely wasn't willing to sign any kind of NDA in order for me to have the privilege of conversing with them about a vulnerability I discovered for them. It sounds like there were so many obstacles, like so many hoops that you had to jump through and so many like moments of proving your credentials. And like you said, you got to the point where you're like, I wrote the international standards you should be taking this seriously you know this is a thing and all of these headaches all of these hurdles they make me wonder if if you were ever worried about disclosing this information to clubhouse and and i ask that because in like a really extreme example you mentioned right that you started out as a pen tester and and i actually remember reading a story back in like 2019 that a pair of pen testers that was contracted with the state of Iowa. They were actually arrested for successfully doing their jobs. They they did penetration testing on, I believe, like a set of courthouses. And lo and behold, they did their job and then they were arrested for it. Again, that's a really extreme example, but I see it in the same vein of security research, of finding flaws. And so on that, again, were, were you worried about disclosing this information? I myself enjoy a particular privilege in this area. I would find it highly unusual if an organization tried to legally threaten one of the authors of the ISO standards on how to do vulnerability disclosure. So I was never personally worried. But by that same token, you know, I have fought for my entire career for the safety of security researchers in doing this important work without worrying about breaking the law or breaking export controls, if you can believe it. Export controls for a while were threatening vulnerability disclosure and vulnerability handling and incident response. And so I personally went to help the United States government renegotiate something called the Wassenaar Arrangement, which is 41 different countries agreeing at the country level to what they can export and what needs an export license. And from my perspective, I wasn't frightened for myself, but I definitely have recognized the fact that legal threats are among the most chilling things that can happen to security researchers. And in a lot of cases, if you're faced with the prospect of an uncertain legal outcome, most security researchers, myself included, will not bother to disclose the issue. And why that is dangerous to organizations is if one researcher can find those vulnerabilities, attackers and criminals can find the same ones. And so if you've frightened away the good guys and the good gals like myself from even being able to find the front door to report a security vulnerability, then guess what? The attackers and the criminals are still finding them, probably exploiting them, and your users are at risk. There are a couple of directions to go from here, right? Because you brought up so much good stuff there, and I wanted to stay on that, to stay on 
the consequences of creating programs that actually disincentivize security researchers from coming forward, the good folks from coming forward. This might be really big, but why are things that way right now? (laughs) You know, most organizations take security in small enough bites because they aren't really incented to take it more seriously until a big incident happens. It certainly wasn't money that was the issue with Clubhouse. They were swimming in, I think they had just gotten $100 million deposited into their bank account with that $1 billion valuation. And so what was interesting was they were basically oriented towards hyper growth, which is exactly what the economic models of venture capital backed startups want. And they, in terms of security, when I was speaking to real people there, I said, look, you didn't invest appropriately for the level of popularity and level of responsibility that you have to your millions of users. You did not invest in security appropriately. And they took issue with that assessment. They said, no, no, we We've gotten a pen test, a penetration test, you know, where we have a bug bounty program, we're investing. And uh, frankly, those are supposed to be activities that you use to double check your security investments. Those are not supposed to be your security investments. You cannot get to a secure application from pen testing the end product or opening up a bug bounty and asking the public to help you find security issues. You need to be building security in from the ground up. And this is unfortunately the reality that we have in commercial software development and certainly in these venture-backed startups is that they're prioritized for growth, but not the responsibility that they have for security and privacy. A fellow security professional who is a former FTC attorney and is one of the only attorneys I know who is also a hacker and a founder of one of the DEF CON villages I believe it's the badge hacking village. But, you know, she had over 60 days trying to get access to her private data. She was not a user of Clubhouse, but Clubhouse was requesting the contact lists of every user if you wanted to send an invitation. So she knew that even though she herself was not a user of Clubhouse, that her personally identifiable information was being stored by Clubhouse. So she was requesting her data per California law, and it took them 61 days to respond to her. So my point here is that Clubhouse and the venture capitalists that back companies with hyper growth as the goal are overlooking security investment left and right. I wanted to go back to bug bounty programs and something that you said that a lot of particularly venture backed startups that are so hyper focused on growth, singularly focused on growth, that they are implementing after-the-fact measures to verify whether or not they are secure, right? Security is the afterthought. Like you said, pen testing isn't the certification. It's not the badge that you put on yourself. It's That should be double-checking. That's double-checking work. And so I wanted to ask then, you know, with the way that you've seen a bug bounty program implemented, at least at Clubhouse, and probably from the ways you've seen these programs implemented in many other companies, are then bug bounty programs, are they enough? What else should companies be doing? Well, certainly the bug bounty program 
and frankly, the bug bounty platform provider that was supposed to be helping Clubhouse manage their vulnerability issues, they definitely dropped the ball because even though I didn't submit through that platform, Clubhouse, the folks over there said that they would pay a bounty and they would pay it to, you know, donate it to the nonprofit Pay Equity Now Foundation. But they kept waiting for a bounty recommendation from their bug bounty service provider. And this was, to me, this was very odd because it told me that their bug bounty service provider didn't already discuss with them what different severities of issues, what the payout should be for those. Because it should have been, you know, a very easy, fast number to come up with. And the reason that I was asking, even though I wasn't collecting the bounty myself, but it was going to this nonprofit, was because I was writing this blog post and I had shared the blog post draft with Clubhouse. I coordinate all the way through any public disclosure. And I had left a blank spot in the blog for the bounty amount. I ended up having to publish the blog with, you know, essentially a placeholder at the time of publication. The bug bounty service provider has not given a recommendation for a bounty payout that's going to go to the Pay Equity Now Foundation, but that Clubhouse has committed to paying that bounty. So what was interesting to me in terms of failure states of bug bounty programs in general is that if you have an outsourced service provider, they better have discussed with you what the payouts should be well before any bug crosses the front door. And there shouldn't be any delays like this in figuring out what a payment should be for a particular severity of issue. And then the second thing is that it didn't just take them a day or two. It was really like over a week after the publication of the blog was out before they finally apparently made a bug bounty recommendation and that bug bounty was paid to the Pay Equity Now Foundation. So I think that the way that commercial bug bounty platforms are working right now is in a very narrow little slice of the workload around overall vulnerability disclosure programs. They definitely weren't acting as liaisons or even as authoritative sources of what bounty should be paid for what kinds of bugs. And it also spoke to me that clearly this program was launched prematurely for Clubhouse because they should have had those decisions already made. And if they had had a payout table for different severities of bugs, this would have been something that Clubhouse could have just, you know, awarded, not having to wait and ask their bug bounty service provider for a recommendation well after the fact that the issue had actually gone public. It sounds like we have two problems of the same vein here. There's the one that the bug bounty programs, as they're instituted, like you said, they're very narrow. And your organization is too large, too popular, and too well-funded to be in the denial stage of the the five stages of vulnerability response grief. But you shouldn't have to be the author of international standards on how to do a thing in order for you to get attention for a vulnerability report. You having to sign an NDA. And there's also the problem of responsiveness. So again, we've talked a lot about problems. What does a good bug bounty program look like? 
Well, a good bug bounty program would start well after a bunch of other security investments internally. And by that, I mean, we actually recommend a whole vulnerability coordination maturity model assessment, a VCMM assessment. And that is there to identify gaps in people, process, and technology internally. Because what good is any bug bounty program or vuln disclosure program if you lack the capacity to fix the bugs, right? Knowing is half the battle. In this case, knowing is probably one one hundredth of the battle. And then after that, conducting a professional penetration test should be your next step if you're looking at getting outside eyeballs onto your applications and your products. And the reason I say penetration test and professional penetration test as opposed to a private bug bounty, because again, the bug bounty platforms will often tell you that a private bug bounty is superior to a professional penetration test. I've actually seen marketing like this even today put out by different bug bounty platforms. It's different because professional penetration testing has a group of professionals that have been vetted for their skills and they are adherent to that professional penetration testing company's guidelines in handling sensitive data They will often have protocols to destroy all customer data at the end of performing their assessments, and they're held to a higher professional standard. Plus, you are basically scoping out the engagement to ensure that all of the attack surface of the application is covered in the engagement. And that is much more important as a first step of looking for bugs from outsiders or getting outside help to look at bugs. And then once that's all done and you've fixed the bugs that you've found, you've used them to teach your developers how to not make those same vulnerability mistakes again and incorporated that knowledge into your secure development lifecycle, and you've hired people internally to be able to do thorough investigations of any incoming bug reports, because that's another component that bug bounty service providers do not give you. Once you've done all of that, then... And only then is it relatively safe for you to open up a vulnerability disclosure program. And honestly, we recommend that you run that kind of program without a bug bounty for at least a year, possibly two, to identify trends and further improve your internal security. Once you've done all that, you can begin to use bug bounties as a way to focus researchers' eyes on the most important and critical areas and pay them rewards for the things you want to hear about the most. I wanted to go back really quick to something you said there, which is that you've seen that there are, you know, bug bounty platforms, providers who are saying in their marketing language that a private bug bounty program is better than hiring a group of professional pen testers. How long has that been going on? You know, that's been going on, honestly, since the beginning of bug bounty platforms. And I think the majority of them are saying that look, you get many, many diverse sets of eyes as opposed to whatever specific pen test resources are assigned to your project at the time. And while that sounds like it could be true, if that were true, all open source software would be incredibly secure because, you know, (laughs) all of the eyes can look at the software. It's a problem of focus skill set and will. And what the private bug bounties will do for you is they don't really help you 
in the ways that the marketing of the bug bounty platform suggests, all they do is allow you the illusion of control. And I say the illusion because, again, bug bounty platforms are the gig economy service providers of internet security. None of the bug bounty hunters are employees. And the only threat that bug bounty platforms can actually follow through on with these bug bounty hunters is kicking them off the platform. They can't, you know, fire them. That's, I guess, their equivalent of firing a, a hacker. But a hacker can keep on hacking and even communicate with the vendor in question directly over email or some other channel and not, in, you know, bypass the bug bounty platform completely. So it's selling them an illusion of control. It's selling them an illusion that many eyes make all bugs shallow, which we know from all the open source vulnerabilities is simply not true. And they're cutting out the reassurances that professional penetration testing has, which is that you've got people who have been vetted already by their employer for skills, for their temperament, background checked if necessary, certainly in order to get the employment in the first place, and that they have procedures in place for those professional penetration testers to go ahead and destroy any sensitive information that they might have gotten from one penetration test to the next. I always enjoy asking, I think most of my guests on the show for the past few months now, how to fix the things they see. Because there are so many myriad ways to do that, I think. And in this episode alone, we're just learning about bug bounty programs, the blinders to just having one of those. Something I learned just now from speaking with you, right, is that there is marketing language that is swaying perhaps a lot of startups that may not know any better. And that's kind of hard to combat against when you've got a young company that's being told from the folks who are giving them money that their priority is to grow. And so, you know, they, I don't know, they do a Google search, they find out how to do security, right? And maybe they're believing these things they're finding from bug bounty platforms. And what I want to ask again is, is to kind of bring it back to how do we fix the things that are going on right now? How do we make an environment that makes vulnerability disclosure like safe and easy and trustworthy? And I know that's a huge question and it feels a little unfair to ask it, but I, I do want to ask it to you, which is knowing what you do about bug bounties and knowing what you do about vulnerability disclosure, what would you like to see in the cybersecurity community moving forward? What's an ideal world in this landscape? Well, let's bring it back to Clubhouse as the example. They were a high-growth, well-funded startup, and clearly they had the money and the will to do something about cybersecurity, and that's why they started their private bug bounty program. And instead, I would have loved to see Clubhouse hiring for security engineers well before they started even a vuln disclosure program, let alone a bug bounty program. So that would have been step one. Try to hire internal help first. And the reason for that is that would you build an entire house and then go for an inspection before you've asked, you know, an architect to inspect the design of the house? No, 
you absolutely would have to architect the house or the software in question with security in mind from the get-go and ideally clean up any egregious errors before you open up your doors to strangers to ask them to help you find additional security vulnerabilities. And if you've done that work, that actually lends itself to a much healthier VDP or bug bounty when you are ready to launch. Why? Because one, you're not scrambling to deal with hundreds of vulnerability reports, potentially all reporting similar or the same vulnerabilities, because the lower the low-hanging fruit bug is, the more likely that anyone can find it, meaning you'll have tons of duplicate reports. And while the bug bounty platform companies can help you by only marking the first report as the original and then kind of cleaning up the duplicates for you, what does that do to all the hackers who came in with the same bug report but didn't happen to be number one? Even in the case where there isn't a bug bounty present, you know, where bug bounties, only the first reporter will get paid. But even if there isn't a cash reward, what does that do to all of those researchers? Well, it discourages them. And the more you have an unhealthy program that has a lot of duplicates, meaning a lot of low-hanging fruit, the worse and worse your relationship with the security researcher, friendly hacker community will get because you will get a reputation of being slow, of calling issues duplicate that maybe have been present and still active for many, many weeks, if not months. And eventually you'll get a reputation where the best security researchers won't even bother to tell you. And that is a very dangerous place for any organization to be. Honestly, if I could remake the world, you know, looking back over my 20 plus years as a professional hacker and security professional, et cetera, I would have probably said that bug bounties are really only for the security 1%. The organizations that have already invested so much in their cybersecurity programs that everybody else shouldn't even be considering a bug bounty program until they have made some of those internal investments. But the world being as it is right now, I am happy that there are more legally permissible avenues for researchers to disclose vulnerabilities. But, you know, if they're kept in the darkness, kept in silence, and the majority of bug bounty programs that are actively managed on bug bounty platforms are private right now, if they're kept in the dark and in silence like that, we're not advancing the state of cybersecurity. We're just doing more security through obscurity and trying to execute control where it doesn't belong. I'm so glad you brought that up as we close out here, because that is a theme that has come out multiple times on this show. I've spoken to folks who are in vulnerability disclosure. I spoke with the chair of the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, Victor Chevers, who was part of the team that found the vulnerability in Kaseya, the zero day. I spoke with Chloe Mastagi at Point3 Security, and everyone that I've spoken to says, like, we don't have the right legal protections, and we are also facing legal threats for doing good work. And that sounds wrong like in the simplest most like boiled down sense it just sounds unfair it sounds unfair that we have a system that could penalize or at the very least scares folks who are trained in this right the divd they do this every day and i was told specifically they're set up in the netherlands because that's the country that allows them to work the fastest where Things as simply as like right there, equivalent of a district attorney understands what they're trying to do and will not bring charges even if they hear about it, you know, because they're like, no, these, these folks are doing good things. 
that's not the same around the world. And that's disappointing. That's all. Yeah. And I would say that a lot of people talk about, quote unquote, legal safe harbor for vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty programs. And I really hate the use of that term because it's wrong. I mean, there is no such thing as legal safe harbor because that would have to be written into not just the laws here in the United States, but international laws. There are anti-hacking laws around the world. And if a researcher based in France, for example, tries to disclose a vulnerability to a company based in the United States, they're operating under a different legal framework than the researchers in the United States. And nobody can grant them what I call hacklematic immunity. You know, you cannot say that if you follow our process and policy that you have legal safe harbor. All you can actually say, and I say this authoritatively as being the person who got Microsoft to say for the very first time back in 2007, that they would not press charges against any security researchers who operated in good faith and gave them a chance to fix issues, you know, et cetera. All you can say is what you will do as an entity. You cannot control any other entity legally, whether or not they will press charges. And when I advise the Department of Defense in their ongoing vulnerability disclosure policy, the legalese section was very carefully worded and still to this day is carefully worded to say, you know, we won't bring legal charges against you if you follow this policy. And if a third party brings legal action against you, then we'll stick up for you. But it's basically acknowledging the fact that even if you follow the policy to the letter, no entity has the power to grant you legal safety. And I think the U.S. Department of Justice in 2017 published a set of guidelines that if you want to start a vulnerability disclosure program or a bug bounty, please think through what you want done with data in particular with data. Do you want data to be in scope at all? If so, what kinds of data? What do you want the researchers to do with the data once they've found it? Being as clear as possible when you write your policy allows there to be less ambiguity between a bad actor and somebody who is legitimately performing security research. Katie, I wanted to thank you again so much for being on today's show. Thanks, it was a pleasure. To our listeners at home, We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with noted cybersecurity researcher and hacker Sick Codes about his and other hackers' successful efforts to hack a couple of tractor companies. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at www.blog.mauerbytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>